So I started to think about, okay, well, what is my relationship with money? And I was kind of, you know, doing a little life review and looking at my past. And I thought about how I grew up and I grew up, um, my parents, you know, divorced when I was young. And so I would often spend my summers with my grandparents on my mom's side of the family. And I love my grandparents. I love spending time with them. But when I was a kid, I didn't actually realize just how poor my grandparents were. Um, they, they grew up in the Depression, and they lived in the same house their entire life. This was a house that they built, and this house was small even by Sonoma County standards. <laughs> and so growing up in this house, I remember very clearly how cluttered it was. It was a little chaotic. In fact, there was this whole like kind of narrow room that was behind the TV in the living room that I remember that was just filled to the brim with junk. My grandparents were hoarders, and I didn't know it at the time. And so growing up with my grandparents, um, I took on a lot of the ideas about money that they had because they were poor. They, they had ideas about money and, you know, no harm, no foul. Um, it's sort of a product of what they grew up in growing up in the Great Depression. And so we would go out to get groceries and me being the little kid that I am, as all little kids are, I was like, please buy me a toy. And my entreaties never seemed to work on my grandpa. He was pretty stubborn. He was able to resist. My grandma, though, I love my grandma so much. She was the most lovely, loving soul, and she just loved to see people be happy. She was this little five-foot-tall bundle of joy. And I would still have to wear her down a little bit. (laughs) But eventually I would, and I would just sort of see her relax and just sort of sigh And then she would get me a little, like, $5 box of Legos. And I didn't realize at the time that that was a bit of a stretch for her. And so what I learned as a kid, I started to learn these phrases from my parents, from my grandparents. And one of those phrases that I sort of took on was, money can buy me happiness. Of course it can. My, My grandma spent money, and then she got me this thing, and now I'm happy. What I didn't realize as a kid, of course, is that that happiness was a little bit fleeting, and it took more purchasing of things for me to feel happy. Now, because my grandparents also were not very financially well off, they had opinions about those who did have more money than them. And so there is also another phrase that I learned from them, and that is one that you may be familiar with, money is the root of all evil. Oh, yes. And so I want to talk about those two statements today because I feel like those are two statements that are really baked into our culture these days. And they seem to conflict, don't they? Right? Like, money is going to buy me more happiness, but money is also evil. And so we have to find a way to reconcile these. And so let's start with that first one. Money can buy happiness. Well, it seems fair to posit that when, at least in the United States and you know, across the world too, the whole world experienced the Great Depression, that we might adopt this sort of an idea coming out of something like the Great Depression where everybody's impacted. Everybody's impacted by 
having their savings wiped out and not being able to support their families. That was a very real thing that happened, and I don't want to discount that. And when these kind of things happen, as a culture, we tend to react. And so the reaction that came out of that was, got to get more stuff, got to get more stuff, got to get more stuff, because one day the other shoe might drop, and now I'm going to have to sell that stuff so I have money to feed my family. I'm pretty sure that was what was going through my grandparents' mind when they were just accumulating stuff that I look back on it now, you know, maybe they thought it had some value and if something bad were to happen, they could sell some of those things. And so that seed was planted in our collective consciousness and it grew and it grew and it morphed out of I've got to keep all this stuff so I can survive to this idea that money is going to buy us happiness. And so we should get as much of it as we possibly can. The more money I have, the more happy I will be. And that seed continued to grow and to grow, and pretty soon we find ourselves in the age of materialism. This focus on material goods and gathering more stuff. Keeping up with the Joneses. So-and-so just got that new statue on their lawn, so I better go get a bunch of garden gnomes to fight it off. Otherwise, I'm not going to keep up. And this is a pervasive idea that is really real right now. And um, in my generation, you know, I grew up in the video game generation. I played lots of video games when I was a kid. I still play a video game every now and again. And one of the things that we're noticing about games today, um, especially because they're on these things called smartphones now, is this idea of microtransactions, these video game companies came up with this money-making idea that, well, we're not just going to sell the game to them. We're going to give it to them for free. But inside of the game, we're going to have all of these microtransactions, these little things where a kid could spend the little bit of money that they do have, or they can just steal their parent's credit card and put it in there. And they can buy stuff. And they're preying on this, this idea of, um, especially for younger minds, that we've got to get more stuff. And so you might get this collectible in a game or this other collectible in a game, and it's never ending. And this idea has become so pervasive that thankfully, I, I, a lot of European countries now are actually banning these microtransactions because they see that it's a very, it's a very addictive thing that this constant hit, like we're getting a hit of dopamine in our brains when we participate with this. So that's just one example of how materialism continues to evolve in our culture. But the truth is, and we see this with research in the last 20 years, is that money probably isn't going to buy us happiness, not long-term happiness and at least not past a certain amount of money. Once we get past a certain amount of income, these studies are showing, and this is the amount that tends to cover things like our rent, our mortgage, our food, um, supporting our families, health care, and gives us enough freedom, enough economic freedom, so that we can explore, we can have good experiences, we can be curious. Once we get past that, everything else tends to be icing on the cake. 
it, it, it tends to be a diminishing return where that extra money is not really going to do much for us. And this wasn't a surprise to me being a psychology nerd because I know that um, this guy named Abraham Maslow did a lot of research and he came up with this thing called the hierarchy of needs. And what he found is that our needs over time tend to evolve once they're met. So once we meet our basic need for survival, then our needs shift. And now our needs become, oh, I want to have more positive relationships. I want to have love in my life. And then it shifts and like, oh, I want to have more spiritual experiences. I want to connect more. And it moves away from this materialism and from the pure accumulation, accumulation of money. Another challenge that comes out of this, though, is that if we don't allow ourselves to evolve once we do have those needs met, that too can lead us toward unhappiness and feeling less fulfilled, less satisfied in life. And that's absolutely been my personal experience because, you know, growing up in relative poverty as a kid, I had that strong survival instinct um, sort of programmed in me by my parents and my grandparents. And I learned this not quite accurate belief that if I could just buy the next cool thing, whether it was a video game or a toy, then I would be happy. But even though I managed to get my college degree and get a job that paid all of my bills, I found myself more and more unhappy with all the stuff that I was accumulating. I actually found myself turning into a bit of a pack rat just like my grandparents were. I also found myself more in debt because I was so infected with the idea that expensive things, the more expensive something was, the more happy it was going to make me. And the problem was I was a musician and there is no limit to the, how expensive guitars can be. <laughs> I see you laughing over there, Chris. <laughs> And so I would spend far beyond my means, and I got into so much debt. So that's one side of the spectrum. Now let's talk about the other side. Money is the root of all evil. Ooh, there's that word, evil. Ooh. This is a really powerful and challenging idea that seems to conflict with that previous statement, right? But nevertheless, I feel like this statement, too, is the cause of a lot of our problems around money. And I want to be clear, if we set aside the, the triggering word evil here, and maybe we say money is the cause of many of our problems to make it a little bit less absolute, there is a little bit of truth in that statement. For example, if we go back and we look at modern research again about extreme wealth, and when I say extreme wealth, I'm talking like tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. There's some research now that shows that once somebody comes into that amount of wealth, their level of compassion and empathy, when tested, actually goes down. I know. And the hypothesis for why that happens is because money becomes the means of solving problems then. After all, well, I've got millions of dollars, I can just throw money at this and make the problem go away. But I think as we know here in our wonderful community at the center, oftentimes what's needed most 
to find the resolution to a problem or a challenge is just simple compassion and empathy. And I know for me in the past that when I was so focused on my money and my money problems, especially when I had more money, I was not the most compassionate person to be around. It was hard for me to open my heart and myself to others when I was judging my self-worth based on my net worth. But at least in the society that we currently live in, it is also true that having at least some money is both necessary and desirable. You know, at least until we can reach that point where we can maximize our sense of freedom in the world. After all, it's really hard for us to grow and to have good experiences in life when our core need for survival, having food, having shelter, when those needs are not being met. And so that points me towards where we can find our answer, how we can reconcile these two. And the invitation, I think, is for us to find balance. Yes, that's the Buddhist answer. We're going to find balance. At the end of the day, money is just a tool. It's like a screwdriver, a power drill, a bandsaw. It's designed to make our lives easier. I believe that's what it was originally intended to do, is to make our lives easier. Because after all, it's a lot easier for us to just carry some bills in our pocket or a credit card or a debit card or whatever than it is to have a whole, you know, herd of goats with us. I mean, have you ever tried to put a goat in your pocket? They don't appreciate it. What fills me with hope, though, is when I look at what other countries in the world are doing. For example, the country of Bhutan, which I know some of you have gone to on spirit tours and other other tours, they pioneered this thing called the Gross National Happiness Index. I know, right? Don't you wish we had that? And they do still track those same money metrics that many other countries do, like gross domestic product and things like that. But they recognize that those money numbers only tell part of the story about where their population is at. And so they started surveying their population to find out just how happy and fulfilled they are. This is like a 300-question survey, by the way. It's very comprehensive. And they do this because they know that money is not the only measure of success. It's not the only measure of happiness. And they are concerned most about the well-being and the happiness of their people. And this is true for other countries in the world, especially the Nordic, the Scandinavian countries, that have a focus beyond just money. They recognize that money is simply a tool that should be used to cultivate more well-being, within their society. And I want to be clear, I don't want us to idolize these countries because they also have their challenges. They're not perfect. There's things that they're working through as well. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. Because what they've chosen to do as a society is to expand their focus beyond money as simply a means to its own end. And what these countries are doing, we can replicate ourselves in our own personal lives. 
Because I think what they've found that we can also take in as a teaching is that money simply allows us to focus our attention, our consciousness, you could say, on a specific area of our lives. And that area can be happiness. It can be well-being. And this is a powerful practice that I've found that helps me to find my own balance because it's taught me to recognize what money can do for me that actually does lead to long-lasting happiness and well-being. It's not necessarily more stuff. Had to learn that lesson the hard way. Rather, I found that money can help me to focus my attention on the experiences that are meaningful for me in my life. Maybe that experience is going on a trip. Maybe it's going out to eat with friends or having some beers with the guys. Maybe it's the joy of playing music with a new musical instrument. I can hear Dr. Edwards saying, oh, he didn't buy another guitar, did he? No, I didn't. (laughs) Moreover, I can use that money to help spiritual communities like ours to grow and to thrive. In fact, I'd like to share with you our new giving intention video now that I helped to create with some of our staff members and our practitioners and our members um, who've chosen to place their focus on our community here. And I invite you to listen closely to what everyone is talking about in this video and see if you can identify the positive, meaningful experiences that they're sharing. Can we get that video, please? Thank you. The Center for Spiritual Living Santa Rosa came into being to be a place that says to every person who walks in our doors or who joins us online, you are welcome here. I'm so grateful for finding my center at the center. When I first walked in, I was welcomed by a spirit of love and fellowship. My spiritual journey of self-discovery and healing is now flourishing in an accepting community of unity, love, and diversity that is very active in supporting the surrounding community. I'm gaining so many practical tools taking spiritual classes that embrace freedom of thought. After each service, I'm uplifted and I take away new perspectives and focus for the upcoming week. And I'm having so much fun with the fellow volunteers in the bookstore. I'm happy to now be home with my soul and fellowship with my spiritual community at the center. I am so grateful that our center is here and that it continues to grow. This past year has been a challenging one for sure, but what continues to inspire me is seeing how so many of us consistently show up to help us bring our science of mind teaching into the world and to share our spiritual community with Santa Rosa and beyond. We are all making a positive impact in the world and that is beautiful to behold. The reason I am grateful for this center primarily is because of the people, their love, their joy, their willingness to be themselves, I love this center because it's a place where I get to look within, I can be challenged, I can discover, I can transcend. I love this center because for me it's a place of healing, a 
place of peace, a place of love, and that resonates with me. At the Center for Spiritual Living Santa Rosa, we are guided by four core values, spiritual living, integrity, love, and compassion. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to pursue spiritual study through the Center. I've always enjoyed reading and learning, and to be able to take classes that increase my spiritual enrichment is a very positive thing happening in my life. Teachers, assistants, and other class members make a safe and respectful community for sharing and learning. I love taking classes at the Center for Spiritual Living. Ours is a community-supported organization, so I want to thank you for the support that you give to the Center for Spiritual Living Santa Rosa through your love, through your prayers, and through your financial support. Together, we are creating a world that works just a little bit better for everyone. So did you hear what Shar and Greg and Lawrence and Dr. Edward were talking about in that video? Love and fellowship and healing and learning and volunteering, all of these, all of these are meaningful experiences. And thank you also to Shar and Greg and Lawrence and Dr. Edward for sharing your love with us in that movie. Um, our, Greg is actually up doing our live stream right now, so um, thank you, Greg, for that. This is one of the most powerful transformative things I know that we have to share here at the center. If there's anything that I hope that those who walk through our doors take home with them, it's positive, meaningful experiences like this. Really, these are deeper experiences of the divine, of spirit in our lives, aren't they? Those experiences, I know, are priceless. More and more, I think we're learning that it's not stuff that's going to bring us that happiness, but rather experiences that have meaning to them. Even corporate America is figuring this out. Companies like Google have done their own research and found that while big monetary bonuses can be life-changing for their employees, the real impact came when they rewarded employees with shared experiences, like trips to Bali or company bar barbecues even. And so I found that for me, money is simply a reflection of where I'm choosing to focus my attention. Where we share our money, I think, is a good indicator of what we feel is important in our lives. As I found myself with enough money that I would be able to share it with others, I was increasingly shown that where I spent it was a reflection of those things that I thought were important in my life. And the more I did an inventory on my spending, the more I realized that I could maybe do a little bit better job myself of directing my money to where it could actually do good and reflect back to me the good I wanted it to do. I learned that I can direct my money towards those things that make my heart sing. And even better, I could even allow that money to help others sing the song of their hearts. 
And so I shared my money with my spiritual community, and I spent it on trips where I got to explore and exercise my curiosity. I got spiritual books, and I enriched my own understanding of the world. And I spent it on shared experiences with my friends, many of which are still my most cherished memories. And so the question that I invite you to ponder over the next few weeks is this. Where are you focusing your attention in your life? And once you've answered that, I think the logical follow-up question is, am I good with where I'm focusing my attention? Or could I focus it somewhere else? The more I look at the money state of our world, the more I feel as though our world is asking us to find a new balance, to reframe what money is and what it can do for us. Because money for money's sake isn't really helpful. It doesn't seem to be working out so well. But when I recognize that the spending of my money is simply a reflection of where I wish to place my attention, my focus, I notice that my priorities shift pretty dramatically. And so I'm going to leave you with this quote before our prayer from one of my favorite songs called Awake My Soul by Marcus Mumford. And in this song, he says, where we invest our love, we invest our lives. Let us take that into prayer, shall we? (sighs) So how good it is to be in the presence of that one that infinite source for good. This life, this love, this abundance, this perfection, that is truly all that there is. I know that I am one with it, just as each and every beautiful person here and online and beyond in our whole community, our whole world, we are all one. We are one with this love, this life, this joy, this abundance, this good those qualities of the the divine, they make up our being. And so I claim here and now that in this oneness is the experience of balance. And I call forth that balance in relationship to our money. Wherever we are at with our money, I know that we are blessed by this perfect balance, this perfect harmony that expresses itself as and through us. I know that our finances are blessed and I know that our hearts are open to sharing our finances wherever they can cultivate the highest degree of joy and happiness and well-being in our world. I know that we are all uplifted by this divine one and that our hearts are able to sing the song of the divine in whatever way is perfect and individual to each of us. And it is so beautiful to witness that chorus of beauty that's singing through all of us together. And so I am just grateful for this, grateful for the fulfillment of this prayer and for this open-hearted compassion that is ever the more making itself known. I am grateful, grateful, grateful. And so I release this word into the action of that law that always says yes. And together we say, and so it is.